see everybody today. Um, I will work extra hard to keep y'all awake and alert. Hopefully the donuts will help as well. Um, I, just a couple of quick announcements before I get going here. Um, one is that our teenagers are heading to uh, the Georgia Aquarium today. Um, and so uh, check in with Kenny. They're going to meet in the lobby after church if you have any questions about that. Also, our Young at Heart have a luncheon coming up in a couple of weeks. There's some information in your bulletin about that. Be sure to check that out. And then also I have a picture for you. Uh, this is one of our church members, one of a young lady here that goes to our church. I think she's here today. Is she here today? All right, she's all right, very good. There she is. She gave a little wave. Uh, this is Mabry Williams. And Mabry, uh, yesterday, braved the cold waters of a farm lake and, uh, and, and was baptized. This is, I think this is her grandfather. Am I saying that right? Uh, that baptized her yesterday. So <laughs> She really wanted to be baptized. I mean, March 11th, right? So uh, maybe we're so excited for you. Uh, last week, so we're in a series that we just started last week on the resurrection, the topic of the resurrection. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about Paul talking about the resurrection. He starts out talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and then he uh, turns into this whole thing about the resurrection of the dead, the, re the future resurrection of the rest of us. Um, he, we established last week um, in verse 3, he says, Paul says that Christ died, talking about Jesus' resurrection here, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, verse 4, that Christ was raised on the third day. I've got a slide for you here. These are these three central tenets, if you would, of the Christian faith, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, and that Christ was risen again. Now, these are not the only essential tenets of the Christian faith. Uh, we don't want to make that mistake, but these are certainly central to the concept of the gospel. The gospel doesn't work if we don't have Jesus died, Jesus buried, and Jesus rose again. Paul then goes on to say in chapter 15, they're opening verses there, uh, he, he lists off um, a number of people that saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. We covered some of that last week, over 500 in fact. Um, today, what I want to do is to tackle the next part of what Paul teaches here in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is where he addresses the question about our resurrection. So he begins to open up the subject matter of our resurrection. Uh, he'll get into when that's going to be and what that's going to be like. But for today, he's just going to talk about and make a case for our resurrection, our physical resurrection from the dead. When we leave this earth and go up to heaven... Uh, if the Lord hasn't returned yet and we go up to heaven, we are there in our soul, we are there in our, in our spiritual being. Uh, but then one day the Lord is going to regenerate all of our physical bodies and it's going to return our soul to our physical body. And that will be the rest of eternity. That will come at the return of Christ. Again, that will be something we cover in future weeks. Today, Paul is just making the case that there, that for the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Our text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Here we go. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You may be seated. All right, so let's take a look at these verses. Paul's making some logical uh, arguments here. Verse 12, there's a lot of if-then statements that occur throughout all these verses from chapter 15, verse 12, all the way through chapter, uh, verse 19. So 12 through 19 is kind of one section here where Paul's making this argument, lots of if-then statements. He starts out here in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now notice that Paul uses the words, some of you. 
So he's not saying that all of the Corinthian Christians, not all of the ones that are attending these house churches believe this, but some of them do believe this. And what is it that they believe? He says that there is no resurrection of the dead. So some of them have kind of hit the brakes, pumped the brakes, hesitated at the thought of this bodily resurrection of all of the people that had put their faith in Christ and had died, but then someday their bodies were going to be resurrected back to life. I want to take a time out here and explain why some of these Corinthian believers were hesitating on this issue. I've got a map for you here, and this map shows uh, the city of Corinth in relation to the city of Athens. So this is the Peloponnesian Islands. You've heard of the Peloponnesian Islands before. Well, this is the Peloponnesian Islands. You're looking at it all around the southern part of Corinth. Uh, The GNC is off to, I believe that would be to your left, uh, and then Italy off to your right. Uh, So this is Greece proper. You can see Athens, the capital, I guess it's the capital, of the Greece, uh, the old empire. Um, And then Corinth, just not that far away. I'm not sure how many miles, but I don't think it's a whole lot. Uh, And so what my point is, you can imagine that Greece with all, Athens with all of its um, philosophical thought, with all of its... um, uh, um, You know, it still influences us today, right? So you have all the Stoics, all the philosophers, and everything that are housed there in Greece and so, or in Athens. And so Corinth being so close by, you can imagine the influences of Athens are very prevalent in Corinth. That's my point with the map. According to Greek philosophy, um, but dating back to the time of Plato, got another slide for you here. This is a guy by the name of Plato. I hope I'm getting this right. He was the student of Socrates, right? And then, or did I get it wrong? Yeah, okay. All right, so he was, a, he was a student of Socrates, and then, and then uh, Plato's student was Aristotle. And so we still study these folks today. We still hear from these folks today. And so according to Greek philosophy, according to Plato, he's kind of the father of this concept of dualism. So we call it Platonic dualism. Uh, dualism taught that everything that was spiritual was good and that everything that was material or the physical realm was evil. So in other words, everything that's physical kind of captures pain and suffering and all the misery that we may experience in life. And so the goal of life then, under a dualistic concept, is to go on to become spiritual in the afterlife. I mean, who wants to bring with them their physical body into the afterlife? Because by bringing my physical body into the afterlife, well, then I'm bringing pain, I'm bringing suffering, I'm bringing misery along with me. And so that's the last thing that any Greek person would have wanted, was to bring this physical tent, this physical body, into the afterlife. Um, when Paul, for example, he's, he went to Athens, and he was preaching up on the Areopagus. It's this big, gigantic uh, hilltop, mountaintop, not sure how you describe that, but it's a big rock, um, and it was vast. And he went up on top of there with all the other philosophers and the Stoics of of the day, and he was preaching to them, and he was sharing with them about the gospel. They were fascinated by Paul's brilliant mind. They were um, captivated by the content of his teaching, and they invited Paul, hey, would you please continue to talk? Would you please continue to share with us about this person of Jesus? And so the Bible reports in Acts chapter 17 and verse 19, it says, and they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. And so Paul goes on in his sermon in Athens, you can read it there in Acts chapter 17, team, uh, talking about Jesus, talking about God, talking about um, where we all come from and our purpose in life. And he gets into a lot of this stuff. And then he comes to Acts chapter 17 and verse 32, and he mentions the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus was resurrected back to life. That is that Jesus' spiritual 
person uh, became reunited with his physical person. And you can see the reaction there of Paul's Athenian audience. It says in verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. In the NIV it says they sneered at Paul. So they thought this was funny. They didn't want to, and not only that, but they were like, Man, we don't want to hear anything else you have to say. And so they just dismissed him outright. They just sent him on back home and closed off their thought to him. Now, some people came to faith in Christ as a result of that sermon. But most of them, because Paul talked about the resurrection of the dead, because they had a prior commitment to Platonic dualism, to this concept that the material world is bad, uh, well, they, didn't, uh, they weren't interested in what Paul had to say. Now, fast forward a few days, Paul lands in Corinth. That's his next stop on his second missionary journey. Paul spends about a year and a half living in Corinth, working in Corinth, and of course, preaching and teaching there. He has great success. He starts many house churches, but even in his house churches, even amongst the people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, there is still this hesitation. There is still this apprehension within the Corinthians who are influenced by Athenian thought, right? By all those philosophers right next door, town right over there. And they're influenced by that. And so there's this hesitation when Paul starts talking about the resurrection of the dead. They're just not so sure that uh, that just doesn't work with my predetermined, my pre-existing ideas of the afterlife. And so they weren't comfortable with that. And so some of them said, you know what? We'll accept that Jesus resurrected from the dead. We see that early on in chapter 15. Paul says, y'all accepted that. But when it comes to me being resurrected from the dead, I'm not so sure I'm going to buy into that. Um, and so uh, why did the Corinthians hesitate? Again, because of their prior commitment to dualism. It was the way they had been raised. It was their value system. It was how they saw the world. And untangling that from their new faith and new beliefs in Christ proved to be a very difficult step. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, that there's no resurrection of the rest of us? Well, now we know why. Because they had a prior commitment to Platonic dualism. It's how they understood the afterlife. That the afterlife is going to be the spiritual experience, spiritual realm only. We're leaving the material, the pain and the suffering behind. Verse 13. But, there is, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul continues to argue, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul is beginning to build some inferences here. He's building a logical argument. He starts out by saying, verse 12, that if Christ was raised, then why not the rest of us? Verse 13, he flips the argument and says, if the rest of us are not going to be raised, then how can we say that Christ was? So why do you make an exception in Jesus's case, but you don't think that there's a continuance? Jesus himself taught about a resurrection of the dead. Why don't you say there's a continuance for the rest of us? Basically, Paul is making the point that you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You can't have Christ being raised, which is central to our faith, while at the same time denying the teaching that the rest of us will be raised in similar fashion. If the resurrection happened for Jesus, Paul says, then it's going to happen for the rest of us as well. Flip that. If it's not going to happen for the rest of us, then it can't have happened for Jesus either. The two go hand in hand. Paul is making the point that these two concepts, the resurrection of the dead, the future resurrection of the dead, you and I, mother who's died in Christ, and Jesus' resurrection, that these two things are not mutually exclusive, but that they are very much interconnected. One leads into, feeds into the other. You, you deny this one, then you deny Christ's resurrection itself. Again, something that is Christ was died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again, something that was central to our faith. Verse 14, 
And if Christ has not been raised, well then, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's meaningless. Verse 15. If Christ was not raised, me, or we, me and all the people who I witnessed him and, and spoke to you about our, our eyewitness accounts of Jesus resurrected, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. That is, that we are lying about what God said because we testify that God raised Christ from the dead. We're just a pack of liars. That's all we are. This is where this is leading. Verse 16. For if, remember our if-then statements, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Again, Paul is connecting the dots. He's saying these two concepts of Jesus being resurrected from the dead and the future resurrection of the dead of all believers, that these two things are inseparable. You, you just cannot, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, two more verses, verse 18. He says, Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now that term, fallen asleep, is a euphemism that they use back in Bible times to refer to someone who has died. We, use, we say someone so-and-so has passed away. Right? It's just a nice way of referring to the fact that someone has died. Um, and so they would say, so-and-so has fallen asleep. Um, and he says, verse 18, so Paul concludes, well, that if what you're saying is true, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them. The conclusion of the matter is, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Basically, if Christ was not resurrected from the dead, then all of this sacrifice, all the, all the, everything that Paul's been doing all these years has been for nothing. Paul is saying that everything, all of his evangelistic efforts that he's been out there doing, all of that was pointless. He says that all of his teaching efforts were just hollow. What a sad, pitiful bunch of people we would be if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. So we begin to see the gravitas of what's at stake here. In Paul's thinking, no resurrection of the dead means no resurrection of Jesus. No resurrection of Jesus means that we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. It means we're all still living under condemnation. It means that the whole thing of Christianity was just a big waste. Basically, we have tied into the wrong belief system, which means when we get to the afterlife, we are going to have a very unhappy experience. That's where Paul leaves it. Now, let's put all this together. Uh, i got a slide for you here, and it shows the logical consequences of the Corinthians' unbelief. So there, some of them pumping the brakes, not all of them, some of them are pumping the brakes at this idea that there will be a future resurrection of those who had died in Christ. And so here's what he says, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ was not raised either, verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then our faith is in vain and our message is empty, verse 14. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then all of us who spoke about the resurrection of Jesus, that we're all just a bunch of liars, verse 15. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then we are still lost in our sins, verse 17. And those who died in Christ are in for a terrible experience of the afterlife, verse 18. Finally, if there's no resurrection, then we are a people to be pitied above all others, verse 19. We have just wasted our time. We have wasted our lives. We have wasted our resources. Everything that we put into this has just been a loss. One last point here. The thought occurred to me that Paul is making a whole lot of hullabaloo. I, I don't know, that's just the word that came together when I was thinking of this. Out of somebody not believing in the resurrection of the believers. Would you agree? I mean, Paul's, he's, he's really laying down the gauntlet here for a group of people, just some in the church, who are uncomfortable with the idea or the notion of there being some sort of a future resurrection of the dead. They're, they're agreeing that Jesus rose from the dead, right? They're with you there. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again. But Paul, I mean, why 
put so much at stake here in the thought of uh, somebody ascending to the notion of there being a future resurrection. Does it really matter that much? Well, that's a great question, and the answer is yes, it does matter that much. Because the Bible says that it is a non-negotiable. Paul is making that point here. The Bible is making that point here. Paul is writing, remember this, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not telling these people what he thinks. God is guiding his thoughts. God is telling these people what he thinks. And God says this is a non-negotiable of the gospel. Belief in future bodily resurrection. Uh, So there's that part of it. But this is not the only place in the Bible where the resurrection of believers is taught. For example, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of this valley of dry bones, and he talks about how these bones and the people of God will one day be brought back to life. I don't think I gave you all this verse, but Ezekiel 37 and verse 12 says, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. God's not just talking about phys- I mean, spiritually raising people up. He's talking about physically raising people up. Daniel has a vision also of the dead being raised back to life. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus himself, fast forward to the New Testament, taught John chapter 11 and verse 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Verse 26. And everyone who, believe, who, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Jesus is laying it out there, and he's asking his followers, because he's about ready to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's the context of chapter, John chapter 11. Um, he's saying, do you believe this, that this is, can happen, that this will happen? Apparently, some of the Corinthians did not. They had drifted into heresy. They were denying the future resurrection of the dead. And God, through Paul, sends them a letter to correct that error. All right, well, that is our text for today. Everybody still with me? Okay, I'll just take that as you're with me. Um, And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, That's a great question. Let's see how our... Thursday morning men's Bible study breakfast group informed me. Um, I, I think I shared with you a couple weeks ago that I'm bouncing ideas off. Anyhow, um, when I was a seminary student, I had already taken lots of Bible classes in my undergraduate. So I really wasn't interested in going and sitting down and taking the Gospel of Matthew again or retaking Romans and Galatians again. Um, and so what I did was I found a field of study that I was really interested in, and so I loaded up on courses in the School of Missiology. Missiology is the study of cross-cultural evangelism, uh, how to take the gospel into a host culture that's not your own, how to package it in a way that people can hear it, understand it, receive it, uh, without compromising the truth of the gospel. And so I just found that to be a fascinating field of study, and so I spent a lot of my time um, in that. Um, I was uh, literally sitting in class next to people who were going to Uganda. I was sitting next to people who were heading to Kathmandu. I wasn't heading to any of those places. God hadn't put that call on my life. Um, hopefully, not yet. Um, and, uh, but, uh, I w- but it was fascinating to, to, to meet with these folks, to talk with these folks, and to learn alongside these, these people. One of the concepts that missionaries have to deal with is a phenomena called syncretism. Okay, I got a slide for you here. I know I'm throwing some fancy words at you today, but just hang with me. Um, Syncretism can be defined as 
the blending together of the host culture's beliefs and values with the values and beliefs of Christianity, which is not exactly what I put up there, but the blending of local beliefs uh, and values with orthodox Christianity. So you're taking what's indigenous. You're taking the, the way that people think, the way that people process, the values that they've got in place, their religious um, uh, dualist, dualism, right, uh, prior commitments, and they're blending that when they hear about Jesus and they come to faith in Jesus, and they're blending that together with, uh, with Christianity. And so what forms is this kind of hybrid. So you can see my little model there where we've got the host culture and its values, and then you've got Christianity and its values, and the two kind of come together, and you end up with this kind of in-the-middle muddy mix of a hybrid of Christianity. It's a mixture of both the Orthodox Christianity, right, Orthodox Christianity, and uh, local uh, culture, local uh, value system. Um, that's, well, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Um, he, he's doing what missionaries were being taught to do in my seminary class, is they were being taught to help the local people peel back, right, the cultural layers that they're placing with us alongside or, or calling it Christianity, the stuff that they're drawing in from their host culture and are helping them peel that back, maybe even prevent them from attaching that to Orthodox Christianity. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's writing to peel away dualism. Follow that? That's the point of 1 Corinthians chapter. The whole chapter is dealing with syncretism that's taken place in the Corinthian church. Um, now, what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Well, the phenomena of, of syncretism is real. Not just because it was taught in a seminary class, but because missionaries, anybody that does cross-cultural ministry or cross-cultural work in any way, will tell you syncretism is very real. That when a host culture hears about things from the outside, they have a way of blending that, and bringing that together, and forming some sort of a hodgepodge of stuff. I'm full of words. Hullabaloo, hodgepodge today. I don't know. Um, if it could happen to, now here's my point, if this, if syncretism is real, and it could, and it is, and it could happen to the Corinthian Christians, and it did, who had the Apostle Paul there to stop this from happening, to correct them along the way as they're hearing and learning about Christianity, well, if it could happen there, then that means it could just as easily happen to me. And so the question becomes, in what ways has my culture crept into and influenced my concept of Christianity? Fair question, right? Um, am I thinking the way God thinks? Fair question. Do I espouse God's values? Or is my value system some sort of hybrid value system, a mixture of both what God thinks and what my host culture of the world that I live in think. I'm just going to blend these two together. So you see, friends, it is difficult to peel away and to prevent our host culture from attaching itself to our value system um, because, our, because culture is so powerful or such a powerful force. And, it, and our culture is always trying to shape and inform our Christian beliefs. And if the culture could steal away the Corinthians' belief in the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, then that should tell us an awful lot, again, about the power of culture. Um, what could it do? What has it done to my Christian faith? Um, so what I want to share with you just briefly here are two ways that we can combat 
syncretism of our faith. Like, if this happened in Corinth, it can happen here, it can happen anywhere. Um, two ways that we can combat syncretism of our Christian faith. Um, number one, here we go. How do you combat syncretism? Number one, be involved in your local church. Be involved in your local church. And I know some of y'all want to do what the Athenian philosophers did. You want to sneer at that, right? Because that's so self-serving of you, preacher man, to say something like that um, this morning. Uh, look, the reason I want y'all here, the reason I want y'all here is because I know that all week long, we are all inundated with all kinds of ideas, with all kinds of perspectives, with all kinds of values, with all kinds of beliefs that come from, they're incoming from everywhere, right? And I know that that's the case because, and because of that, we need to come together regularly to hear from God's word, to allow God's perspective to wash over our minds, to hit the reset button, to set our minds back on balance, to regain our perspective, a biblical, right, a biblical perspective. Friends, Jesus did not want us to go out there doing Lone Ranger Christianity. He knew the power of syncretism and the pull of culture. And one of the best ways to combat that was through getting together with other believers every week to remind ourselves regularly of what God thinks and of God's purpose for our lives. I need that. I know that you need that. Be involved in your local church. Um, one of our church members, I see her, she's here. And this is a wonderful thing. I'm going to point her out this morning. Um, so all the ladies are kind of like, whoa, hold on, what's, what's he doing here? Um, and uh, is Carrie McElroy. This is a really nice thing to say about Carrie. So Carrie's going to enjoy hearing about it. Y'all tell her afterwards, Carrie, that's just wonderful. Uh, this is years ago, Carrie. You, you shared with me um, some information about when she went off to college. And she said that, I hope I'm saying this right. I hope, I hope it was you. It might have been somebody else, but I hope it's Carrie. Right. <laughs> And so she shared with me, she said when she went off to college, her dad would call her every Sunday afternoon. I don't think they were texting back then, probably not back then. Call, so I'm going with calling. So he called you every Sunday afternoon, and he would always ask her a question. His question was, Carrie, where'd you go to church today? And I thought, her dad understood the importance of regular church attendance. He knew that that that, it would help recenter, help regather, it would help put things back on balance, it would help refresh the mind, clear the mind, flush out all the stuff they had heard. He saw the importance of regular church attendance. Friends, again, I, I know, at the risk of being self-serving, <laughs> make regular involvement in your local church something that's just standard for you. Um, I always look at church as not a have to, not even just a want to, but it, it, it's a get to as well. And so I'm just thrilled to be able to get together with y'all week in and week out, as I know y'all are. Number two, second way that we can combat syncretism, number two, is to establish God's word as the ultimate source of truth over your life. To establish God's word as the ultimate source of truth over your life. You know, week in and week out, we stand up here for the reading of God's Word. And that's not just some religious exercise that we do that's deep into the heart of Hebrew and Christian church going back to 1885 when the church was founded. I don't know. People maybe stood up for Scripture back then. I don't know. But it's something that we do around here. But it's by design. Um, it's not just ritual. But there's a reason for us doing that. We stand to recognize that this book is more important 
than what anybody else thinks. That this book is God's perspective of things. It's what God thinks in written form. That's what the Bible is. We hear lots of stuff during the week, and it's easy based on the influence of that stuff for syncretism to begin in our own mind and heart. So we stand up week in and week out to remind ourselves that this is where truth comes from. I've got a slide for you here, um, and it's something I've shared. If you've been around Hebron for a little while, you've perhaps seen some of this before. These are John Wesley's four sources of truth. John Wesley was the uh, forerunner of the Methodist church, the Methodist movement. Um, And John Wesley taught uh, that there are four sources of truth in our world, uh, one of those being Scripture, God's Word, that's what he thinks. Um, He also said that just looking around and observing life and observing people, and he said, you know what, I also see that reason is a place where we can get truth from. Like, we can sit down, we can read books, we can observe nature, we can do scientific um, uh, experiments, and we can, through our reason, figure out truth. Um, He said also tradition is a source of truth to us. So we can look at what people have taught before and the people that have gone before us, and so we can, through tradition, discern truth. Another way that we can discern truth is through experience. So we have experiences in life, and those experiences inform us. They make us more wise. We can discover, you know, what's good, what's not good through our experience. Um, What difference does all this make to your life and to mine? Uh, Well, what Wesley is saying here with the way that this model is put together is he believed in something called prima scriptura. Um, He saw there being multiple sources of truth, but that amongst those sources of truth that the scripture is always prima or the scripture is always primary. That the Bible, if, if my science disagrees with the scripture, then I go with scripture. Um, if my logic disagrees with scripture, or my rational mind disagrees with scripture, then again, I go with what scripture has to say. Um, if my tradition disagrees with scripture, and some of us have been raised in situations or backgrounds where not everything that we've been raised with, not all the values that we've heard or understood comport with scripture, and so in those situations, we don't fall back on tradition, we default to scripture. Um, when my experience, how I feel about something, is telling me to go into a direction that's opposite of God's word, friends, I mean, this one can be tough. Because my mind says, just sleep with my boyfriend, just sleep with my girlfriend. My mind says, just go do that, just go do this. Just do anything that, that makes you feel good about yourself, that you think is wise, that you think is right. And um, there's no danger there, right? Friends, wrong is wrong. And God's word says, not our experiences, uh, God's word rather gets to define, not our experiences, what wrong is. So determine in your mind today, who gets the final say on truth? Wesley says, and he's right to say it, prima scriptura, that we put the Bible as primary above all other sources of truth. All right, let me sum up. Paul writes a letter to these folks in Corinth. Part of his agenda is to shore up the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. We learned today that these were struggling, or that folks were struggling to accept some basic Christian teachings because the culture in which they lived saw the issue another way. Corinthians thought the Bible was teaching this. Uh, the local Corinthians were thinking something different. We carry that forward to your life and to mine, saying that we recognize that if this phenomena of syncretism could be a problem for them, it could just as well be a problem for me in my life.
And then we offer two ways that we can combat syncretism in our lives. Number one, by making church involvement an essential part of our week. And number two, by establishing God's word as the primary truth source, the default position in all things. So if there's ever dissonance between what God's word says and some other uh, feeder, then we go with what God's word says. Friends, if the Apostle Paul was around today, that's where I'm going to close. If the Apostle Paul was around today, at least some, okay, I think that's the appropriate way to put this, at least some churches would get a letter. Fair enough? Now, I know, don't, I want to holier than thou here. I know we're not perfect. I know that the leadership of our church is not perfect. But one thing I can say with confidence is that we are pointed in the right direction. And I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful 